Well, again, I just want to welcome you. Uh, if we've never met before, uh, my name is John. I get to serve as uh, the pastor around here. And uh, just for the last number of years, it's been an incredible joy. And every Christmas is like even better because it's Christmas with you. And shouts to the Christmas decorating team who did way more than I could do. I just want to say that. So uh, I'm thankful. I don't know if you have any Christmas traditions. I remember really for a long, long time. And now that we're all kind of split up, we don't do this as much anymore. Uh, but a Christmas tradition for us was gathering with all of our family and Christmas day would happen. We'd open presents, we'd eat together, and then we move on and we would go see a movie. How many of you, is that part of any other Christmas traditions? Okay, cool. Let's three of us hang out later if you want, uh, or do Christmas together. That was like a big part of it. And I remember as a kid, we'd always go and sometimes it was Star Wars was coming out or sometimes it was the newest Lord of the Rings movie that was coming out. Like we were just kind of sci-fi fantasy nerds. So we always leaned into those movies as a family. Now, what's interesting is obviously Christmas, in my opinion, and maybe in your opinion, is the greatest story ever told. It's this powerful kind of moment in human history that changes everything else. But if you were tasked with telling the greatest story ever, how would you begin? Where would you start? I mean, uh, for a lot of us, if you've seen movies recently, one of the first things you do when you know the new movie's coming out is you watch the trailer, like you want to check it out. Now, if you're any movie, like movie purist in here, you're like, I never watch trailers. You guys are pagans. Okay. So we're all on the same page. I watch them too. But there are people in my life who's like, I can't believe you'd watch a trailer. Like, why would you do that? But a trailer really is, is trying in a minute, two minutes, three minutes, it's trying to suck you into the story, right? If you've seen a good trailer, hopefully at the end of that, you're like, I need to see that. I need to go see that. We need to get our family together. We're going to see that. But if you were thinking of how to create a trailer or get people into the narrative of the greatest story ever told, how would you begin? I remember this summer, I saw a trailer for a movie called Dune. Anyone seen Dune yet? Okay. All right. Okay, perfect. Same three people. Let's all go hang out for sure. Uh, same, you guys are my people. I'm just going to preach over here for a few minutes and you guys can figure it out. But it's funny because I, I saw this Dune trailer and, and to be honest, I knew nothing about the book. I didn't even know a book existed. I knew nothing about the 1984 film uh, Dune, which is apparently terrible. I, I went and watched this trailer multiple times because I was like, I need to see this movie, like it threw me into the action. I was invested. It made me laugh. It made me feel emotional all in like this three and a half minute span. And it was just a trailer. Like I wanted to see that movie again. If you were starting the Christmas story, which in my opinion and for Christians throughout the centuries has been their view with this, this incredible story that we have, how would you start? I want to take you to the trailer for the Christmas story. Go to Matthew 1. If you have a Bible or device, we're going to go right there, right away. Matthew 1, 1. It'll be on the screen if you don't have either of those. Here it is. This is how he starts. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it goes on and on and on and on. And you can't pronounce that name and you skip it. You go on and on and on. Just this long list. Like that's how Matthew begins his gospel account is a genealogy. Now, some of you are ancestry.com nerds. I've got some of those people in my family and I don't talk to them anymore because they're so weird. 
But genealogies were so important, apparently, to Matthew, he decides, I'm going to begin the greatest story ever told with a boring, hard-to-read genealogy that no one in the future is going to put their life verse in this chapter. Nobody, none of you. You don't have any of these memorized, probably, because it's a really weird, awkward thing to read through. But here for Matthew, this was a critically important way to begin the story of Jesus's birth. Because a genealogy, first century Israel is the context of where he's writing this, was incredibly important because it did three things. It proved your rights as a person, it proved your identity as a person, and it proved, more importantly, your heritage as a person. Now, we grew up in very independent, individual America, most of us, and, and we don't really have a high value for lineage or heritage, and you don't get jobs based around the fact that your last name is a certain way or anything like that, or you came from this clan or this tribe, but picture yourself in first century Israel, like put yourself in a story. This was everything. Your last name, your heritage really, really mattered. And so by beginning the story this way, in Matthew 1.1, for a Jewish audience and the listeners, this was a Dune trailer. <laughs> this was like, are you kidding me? I got to read the rest of that story. Like, I can't believe he's saying what he's saying. Matthew here is a very Jewish gospel. Most of, of Matthew is written and targeted to a Jewish audience. But uh, a lot of scholars believe that this gospel account specifically, as Matthew is writing down kind of the life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus... Uh, this was probably written in Antioch, and Antioch was not a strictly Jewish community. It was Jewish, it was Gentile, there was a mix of, of cultures and a mix of heritage uh, in this city. And the reason Matthew starts the gospel story, the, the greatest story ever told with Matthew 1.1, the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham, is because he wants you and I, 2021, center church to grasp this truth. If... Jesus is your king. Redemption is your gift. If Jesus is your king, he's, he's making a case here in just a couple words. If Jesus is your king, if he, if he has your allegiance and your life, and he is not just savior, but he's also Lord, then redemption, re redeeming your life is the, is the gift he wants to give you. Now, we're going to talk about why that's tricky, uh, because the Jews, if you're reading verse one, the Jews had questions about who the Messiah was. Is it this person? Is it this person? Jesus is saying later on in the gospels, is this person? You, you can read the rest of the story. I mean, Matthew one is full. I mean, sorry, the gospel of Matthew is full of people questioning, are you really the Messiah or not? And trying to figure it out even the closest people to Jesus, his, his disciples, his students, they didn't really know, is he the Messiah or not? They're wrestling back and forth. So the Jews would have read what you and I just read and been like, uh, I don't know, I've still got some questions. But it wasn't just them. I mean, the Gentiles had questions. These outsiders to the Jewish faith would have had some real questions about whether or not this was for them. Because Jesus was born into a Jewish family, grew up around Jewish people as he would have grown up through his life, there would be questions, is Jesus not just the Messiah for Jewish people or people who are already churched and kind of get it, but is he the Messiah for all people, for people who are outside, for people who are cast out, for, for people who didn't grow up and have the right last name? If Jesus was the Messiah, well, he must have only come for Jews. That would have been a common kind of Gentile attitude. Now, you and I, reading Matthew 1, knowing the Christmas story probably very well, 
You're, you're not, probably not confused about some of the details in, in Christmas just based on where you grew up. But you and I together share questions about redemption, about Jesus, about is he the Messiah for us too. There's questions that you and I probably still have unanswered. And, and we've gotten to live in this community for almost the last five years. And one of the things I've noticed as someone who didn't necessarily grow up in, in this part of town is that there's a lot of people and probably a lot of us that grew up in, in really strong, uh, culturally Christian at the very least environments. Maybe it was a Christian school. Maybe you grew up, your parents were Christian, or at least one of them was, and maybe church was a part of your kind of upbringing. But there's something under the surface that I have noticed is that within our community, even just within West Michigan as a whole, I think there's a stronghold from the devil when it comes to redemption that you and I miss that we just over our heads, we overlook. And you're like, man, it's, it's like eight minutes in. You're getting kind of heavy here. And, and you're right, because I really think it's critically important. I think there's a stronghold when it comes to redemption. Let me articulate what I mean. I have sat with people over the last number of years, even people who used to be in our church who are no longer in our church because of this conversation. Here's the conversation. If I am honest about my need for redemption, people won't accept me anymore. Have you heard this or felt this? If I am honest, if I am vulnerable, if I admit that I have a sin issue or an addiction, or I'm not the kind of husband, I'm not the kind of parent you all think I am, people will not accept me as I am. Now, the sad part is in communities like ours, it's often to withdraw and isolate. I'm just going to leave that thing. Now, the right answer is to press into that thing, but that's for another day. I just think there's this kind of stronghold that the enemy has easily kind of tricked us into thinking. If I'm honest about my personal need, not my neighbor's need, not my government's need, not my community leader's need, not my president or my principal's need, but if I'm honest about my need personally for redemption, people won't accept me anymore. People are going to know I'm a fake, I'm a, I'm a fraud, I'm a phony person. I'm not the Christian they thought I was. And this trickles into our behaviors. It's not just like an internal dialogue we have, and I'm sure that all of us share that, but it also trickles into how we try to live out our faith because uh, let's just take, for example, inviting people to Christmas. Uh, I got sucked into this multiple times over the, over the last couple of years, uh, especially with people who are close to me. So I, I have this internal dialogue running, and maybe you have this. If I invite this person, so I take the invite card you have on your chair, I, I give it to them. I say, you should come to Christmas Eve with me. They're going to think differently about who I am. Maybe they don't know I'm a pastor, and they'll find me out. Or maybe they will uh, try to figure out, well, how come you posted that? Or how come you said that? Or how come you laughed at that joke? If you're inviting me to church, aren't you supposed to be like this holy, perfect person? If I invite someone to church, if I live out my faith in my job or in my school, aren't people going to think differently about me? And I don't want people to think differently about me. Like that's a, an internal conversation we all have. And I want to tell you that throughout this series, my goal, our goal is to look through this beautiful story in Matthew 1, this powerful genealogy and prove maybe even to ourselves again, that if Jesus is our King, then redemption is our gift. And no stronghold is too great. No sin is too overwhelming for God. No, no addiction is too long lasting. No kid is beyond reach. No family member is too far gone. If Jesus is your king, if Jesus is our king, redemption then becomes our gift. 
It's the best gift you and I can receive this Christmas season. I want to give you kind of three clues that, that we're going to walk through over the next couple of weeks. But, but the reason Matthew 1 starts the way it does is these three clues. And so if you're taking notes, I want to capture three specific things. We're going to talk, we're going to talk about David, we're going to talk about Abraham, and then we're going to talk about five women. So David, Abraham, and five women. Here we go. David, the reason Matthew 1 starts with David is that David was the most celebrated king in Israel's history by far. When people thought about great leaders in Israel's history, they thought about David. They thought about a man after God's own heart. They thought about someone who had some moral failures, but had been redeemed and restored and had come clean and repented and, was, and led Israel into a, a better direction. This is why what uh, Isaiah says as a prophet and what Matthew really is echoing here is that the king, the Messiah will reign on David's throne. He's talking about the fact that, that the Messiah will come from this kingly line. He'll have royal blood. So the Jewish people, naturally, if you and I were Jews in the time, we'd be looking for people who had David's blood. It'd be like, are you a potential king? <laughs> like, are you, you'd be in the marketplace like, hey, could you be a king? Uh, you ever thought about it? Do you, do you have the last name David? Like, are you connected in any way? You'd be curious about that because it would mean the redemption of your people. And Matthew's trying to point out the very first thing you need to know about Jesus is that he is a king. He's a king. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. Now, I love America. I love living here. I think it's a beautiful place. But the kingdom of God is not America. The kingdom of God is not a democracy where we kind of vote and choose on what we're going to do. We take our orders and our direction from King Jesus. And all the things that we just sang about, they're still true. Like Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He is a great teacher. He, he is a great friend. It says that, that he sticks closer than a brother. I mean, it's, this is part of who Jesus is. But first and foremost, Jesus is a king. And I relate differently to a king than I do my counselor or my school teacher or my parents. I, I have to kind of submit my life in that way. And, and so... Matthew's gospel, literally one verse one begins pointing out that, that God himself, Jesus incarnate, uh, God incarnate through to Christ is a king. And at the end, you can read the gospel story. What is the inscription? Some of you already would know this, but the inscription above Jesus's lifeless body following his crucifixion is really a mockery, but it's not. Because right above Jesus's head as his body hung there in the sacrificial death for you and I said, Look, Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, they did that as a joke, right? Roman officials, Roman guards. But Matthew is trying to teach us something here. He's saying from the very beginning of the story to the end of the story, Jesus is first and foremost a king. This Messiah has come to set up his kingdom on the earth. The second clue about redemption is Abraham, right? So in Genesis, maybe you know this, Genesis 12, where you can trace the early story of, of God's people and his covenant being established in Abraham. Genesis, uh, or in Genesis, God has this conversation with Abram at the time. And he says, all peoples will be blessed through you, all peoples. And if you dig into that word, even in Hebrew, that, that has connotations, not just like people on the earth, but kind of like all of creation, all ethnicities, all languages, all countries, all people groups, all nations and tribes, they will gather together at the feet of Jesus. We see this in Philippians 2, right? Jesus is the name above all other names and every tribe tongue will bow to him. 
This is what he's saying. So if you're a Gentile who's read the first line, you're like, okay, the genealogy, Jesus, Messiah, son of David, comma, and you just end there, you would probably be depressed. You'd be like, what about us? Like, I didn't grow up in a Jewish household. I'm living in like backwoods Antioch. I'm hoping that maybe the Messiah is for me too. And then you read the next line, the son of Abraham. And boom, even if you didn't know all the Torah, the early scriptures, you would have known he saw all peoples. I'm in that category. John Gored didn't grow up Jewish either. That would have been me. I'd be like, wow, I'm now invited into this new kingdom family. This redemption is for me and my kids and my parents and my cousins too. And so Matthew says, he's not just a son of David. He's a son of Abraham. He has this kingship, but he also has this vision for all peoples to be blessed. The third clue is the fact that Matthew puts in this genealogy, five women. Now, Today, 2021, that doesn't seem that radical. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. Even our family trees now, you have mother and father. But in this first century context, this would have been radically countercultural, even taboo to include women. Why? Because women didn't hold legal status. If they're in a court and they're convicted, they can't speak for themselves. They don't have voting rights. They just don't have the same privileges in a highly patriarchal society. They were viewed as part of the home, part of the property, And here, Matthew's actually elevating women much higher than anybody would have done in the culture. He's saying women matter in the story of God. Women are part of the redemption narrative of what God is doing. And so he puts names like Tamar and Bathsheba or Uriah's wife, Rahab, Ruth, even the Virgin Mary in here, because in a genealogy, uh, they thought that life came from a man. They were like, okay, first century science. This girl's not pregnant. She sleeps with this guy. There's a baby. So life must come from a man. That was the kind of first century Israel biology for you. That was human anatomy class 101. It's like, well, okay, life has to kind of flow out from the man then. Well, what's interesting is as you read through these stories, not only does Matthew include these women to say, actually, this story is for men and for women. He includes women straight up. You would probably try to kind of footnote in your family history. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, she's in there, but she's not in bold and she's not attached to the family tree. Like, and maybe you have kids like that already and you can figure that out later. But you look at that and you're like, oh my gosh, the women he's including are dark, dark stories. And we're going to get into them. And these, they are literally Christmas scandals. I mean, they're stories you would not probably talk about at Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner. It'd be like, yeah, we don't talk about that one. It's, it's stories of murder and rape and incest, stories so far below kind of the human standard for good. They're stories that really have to deal with injustice and, and people being taken advantage of and evil, evil things. And what Matthew is saying is that in God's kingdom, if Jesus is your king, if you submit your life to him, redemption is your gift, man, woman, good background, terrible background. It doesn't matter if Jesus is your king, redemption is your gift. I was reading this and studying this and I came across, uh, some of you know I'm in school right now, I'm in grad school and one of the books I'm having to read actually addressed some of this stuff. And as this, this quote kind of popped off the page and the more I read it, the more I thought, wow, this is a picture of what Matthew 1 is all about. It's from theologian uh, Richard Foster. Here's what he says, love, not anger brought Jesus to the cross. 
Some of us, that's the most powerful thing you're going to get from the morning. Love, not anger, brought Jesus to the cross. The cross came as a result or almost like an outflow of God's great desire to forgive, not his reluctance. Jesus knew that by his vicarious suffering, he could actually absorb all of the evil of humanity and so heal it and forgive it and redeem it. This is what I think the prophet Isaiah is trying to teach us. That's what Matthew's trying to teach us. One of the most powerful scriptures in my mind in, in all of the Bible is Isaiah 44. In this scripture, it's kind of baked into the prophecies about Jesus the Messiah. He says, I've swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. This is how Jesus, is his disposition towards you and I. It's not anger or reluctance or even hesitancy because of the sin in our lives. It's actually an invitation. It's, let me redeem that. If you'll surrender that to me, let me redeem that. If, if you'll bring that terrible decision you made to me, I can redeem that. If you bring that really, really broken relationship you don't think is, is really even worth investing in, I'm not even gonna go to counseling. It's, it's beyond repair. If you bring that to me, I will redeem it. If you bring your anxiety about the future to me, what am I gonna do next year? What am I gonna do in retirement? What am I gonna do once the money runs out or the deal, if the deal falls through, his invitation, just bring it to me. I want to redeem that. I, I, that's the power of Christmas. This is Matthew 1, 1, like Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Jesus does not overlook our sin and think it's not a big deal. Jesus doesn't tolerate our sin and put up with it. He actually longs to redeem it. And this is what's so powerful. And I've had to wrestle with this. To be quite honest, this is kind of a tricky message for me because straight up, there are people in my family tree who in my mind are beyond the grace of God, are beyond the redemption of God. They've hurt too many people. They've injected too many things in their body. They're, they're not ever gonna come back. And I think about specifically, I've got a cousin who I've been praying for this Christmas. And uh, there is just over and over again have been decisions made by this cousin that have hurt my uncle, have hurt my aunt, have hurt my parents. There's been grace extended, rehabs paid for, flights paid for over and over and over again. And every single opportunity that you thought, here's the redemptive moment, it doesn't happen. It's the opposite. It's more cocaine. It's more heroin. And I sit there and I think about Isaiah 44. You know who comes to mind is, is that guy. Because I have to wrestle. I have to be real. Even this Christmas, how much do I actually believe that? Or how much do I just say I believe that? Or how much do I say that if Jesus is your king, redemption is your gift, but I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about people who are already in. And Jesus is saying in this genealogy, in my family tree, I want all of it. I want all of them all peoples. I, I want to bring people like my cousin, which is ironic because Matthew, this Jewish writer, Matthew, the, the funniest part about this genealogy to me and the funniest part about Matthew's gospel is, is anyone have any clues what Matthew's idea, vocation was? Any idea what his job was? Yeah. Okay. Some of you know this, right? He was a tax collector, which was Jewish slang for traitor. <laughs> it was like, you take our money 
you cheat us, you skim off the top for your own benefit, and then you give the rest away to people who oppress us and governments that try to lord over us, to, to rule our property, to hurt our kids, to, to eventually, I mean, oppress us physically and execute us. That, that's your job. Like that's your full-time role. And Matthew is writing this. And I think if you and I just for like a, a, an imaginary second could get into Matthew's head writing this, I wonder if a tear dropped onto the page as he's writing this genealogy, because even Matthew is included. Even Matthew writes this gospel probably keenly aware of the redemption Jesus has brought into his world, into his life. And so maybe today you're sitting here and you're hearing this message and you're thankful for the redemption God has brought to you. Praise God. But you've got an apathetic parent at home who is not, is not even like opposed to the gospel, but is uninterested, which may be worse. Just apathetic, doesn't care about their spiritual journey, doesn't care about their faith, doesn't care that you are invested in church, doesn't care that you are committed and surrendered to Jesus as your king, just apathetic. Can I just remind you, <laughs> redemption is their gift too. If they make Jesus king this Christmas, it's possible. You maybe have a coworker who, when you look on the external features, has it all. The truck, retirement package, great lawn, awesome wife, awesome kids, and who goes home every night and finishes a six pack by themselves. Can I just remind you that for that guy, redemption is their gift too. That Jesus longs to include people like that in his family tree. You may have a married couple across the street from you, neighbors who you know maybe well, maybe super well. And you know that every single time there's a conflict or every single time he cheats on her, she cheats on him. They just try to buy their way out of it. If I just buy more things, if I just make our kids happier, if I just keep upgrading things, it's gonna solve that deep spiritual need and hunger I have inside. Can I just remind you, this Christmas for that couple, redemption's their gift too. The beauty of Matthew 1, we're not, even, we're not even all the way through it. We're one verse in. The beauty of Matthew 1, 1 is that God wants to redeem everybody in your world. Even the people like my cousin, who I have to wrestle with. I have to pray, God, would you give me love and grace and forgiveness that is outside of myself? Because I can't see it. I don't know how to extend that. So I want to leave you with two questions First question is very simple because it's internal and you maybe already know what it is. What does God want to redeem in you this Christmas? Not looking at anybody else, but taking kind of this beautiful mirror Matthew gives us and saying, God, what do you want to redeem in me, in John this Christmas? What area of my life is untouched by your grace? What area have I said, it's not even worth bringing to you anymore? That is the area God's saying, bring it to me bring it to me. Let, let me redeem that. The second question is much more difficult, <laughs> but also is an easy answer for probably all of us. The second question is, who have you given up on? Who have you given up on? Who, who's in your life who you just say, you know what? I'm probably not even going to bother inviting them to Christmas. They won't come. They don't get it. They, they may never get it. And God today may just want to remind you through Matthew's words that they are not beyond the grace. They are not beyond the, the beautiful redemption Jesus offers in this family tree. They're not. 
I was wrestling with this this summer, and uh, which is funny because you're like, why are you thinking about Christmas in summer? <laughs> I'm a pastor, so that's what I get paid to do. I was thinking about Christmas this summer. I was on kind of a break, took some time away with our family, and just was asking the Holy Spirit the question, just asking God, would you just kind of bring up, if there's, I don't know, would you, what do you want to do this Christmas? What do you want to do in this new season? This is our first Christmas in this beautiful new space. Like, what do you want to do this Christmas? And instead of like giving me answers, what he gave me was a number. And I was very confused because I was like, I don't really, again, I'm not a numbers guy. I'm not, under, I'm not reading between the lines here, Jesus. You're gonna have to make it more clear. And so I, I sat and processed it with some of our leaders this fall. We talked about it as a staff. And the number God gave me, I, I think he gave me, I don't always hear him perfectly, but what I think the Holy Spirit said was just the number 200, 200 names. And I said, okay, what, what does that mean? 200 names. Am I supposed to go and meet 200 people? <laughs> Am I supposed to invite 200 people to Christmas myself? I don't know. So we kept processing, kept praying, kept discerning. What I really feel clearly from, from God's spirit is just that this Christmas right here in our house in Center Church, God wants to introduce 200 people to, to the gospel of Christmas, the good news. 200 stories that would be represented by these seats, whether online or right here, to, to hear that, that, that they're not beyond redemption. People need this message. I don't know if your world is as crazy as mine right now, but, but people walk every day past our building over and over and over again thinking, I shouldn't go in there because I don't deserve to be in there. I, I've baptized people in the history of our church these last couple of years who verbally have said to me, you know, I, I, it took me a long time to get here because I thought I had to have it all together before I did this. And I thought when I walked in the doors, this is literally a verbatim quote. When I walk in the doors of your church, lightning will strike me because God will find out all the things I did this last week. Can I just tell you, that's, that's why, those, are, those stories are why we still exist. Those stories are worth sacrificing finances and time and energy, reputation, what people think of me. They just are. There's a guy in my life who had been largely detached from these last couple of years who just messaged me out of the blue and said, hey, you want to go for a run together? And I knew that, that was God saying, there's your chance. I'm, I'm literally dropping someone in your lap to invite them to Christmas to hear the good news of the gospel. And so you don't just have one invite card. So you have a reminder on your fridge, on your chair. You actually have two. And you got some empty chairs around you. So I'm going to challenge some of you who are good inviters, grab more, do more. But this Christmas we're gonna take these cards out. And we have already had our prayer team pray over these cards before you ever got here, asking that those names, those people that God's probably already brought to your mind, that we've created not only one, but two kind of identical experiences for people to make room for people. So these 200 names can hear the power and the beauty of Christmas. And, and friends, there's a lot of things I wanna get out of this Christmas, but the most important thing is this. The most important thing is what God wants to do through us. I just wanna ask you, do you have eyes to see what God is doing? Do you have eyes to see the, the incredible harvest that's out there? Because Jesus doesn't tell his disciples, you should, uh, you should pray that you get a harvest. Matthew 6, he never tells them that. What he tells them is to pray that God would send workers because the harvest is so big. There's just not enough people. So I wanna equip you today. And so together, we're just going to pray out and then we're going to worship. <clears throat> and I want to pray over these cards specifically. I've got mine right here. And there's names that are represented by this card that I'm going to boldly invite. I'm going to put my reputation on the line. 
to do it. And so maybe today as we pray, you just want to grab these cards knowing there's families, there's other people. Uh, we want to ask God to move through it. So Jesus, we, we come before you right now. And uh, as we hold these cards, as we know that there are people in our lives, in our workplaces, in our schools, that may even have that sense that they're beyond redemption. Or maybe you're not interested in redemption. They think that if I, if I bring myself to that service or I bring myself to that church, they're going to judge me or perceive me differently. And I thank you that your grace, the invitation from your grace is that you're going before us. That we are, as we invite people, we are, these 200 names, as we, as we join in this with you, we are not starting something, we are continuing something that you have started. And so we hold on to these with bold faith. God asking, not only as we take these, you'd remind us of our personal need for redemption. That there's things in life that are still broken and unrestored that you wanna work in this Christmas, but more that there are people in our life who you want to radically change this Christmas. So we thank you for that. As we worship you, God, I pray that you would stir us not only to, to move and to take action, but you'd stir us and be reminded of the incredible love you have for us in Christmas. Just this, this beautiful story that over and over again is a reminder that you are still at work and you are still redeeming things. We love you and we surrender it to you in Jesus' name, amen.